Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked, Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, indeed we would, we would receive these scriptures as your urgent and vital word for us today. We pray that you would speak them into our hearts, uh, challenge us and encourage us by your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're sitting down, could you uh, please turn back to Acts chapter 4. That's page 1095 in the church Bibles. There's also a, a handout amongst the papers you were given on the way in uh, that you can use to follow along or make notes. 
Now, I wonder if you noticed that killing people is so, so part of the fabric of our, our lives in this world that for some people it's become almost an intellectual pursuit, so almost an art form. It goes back deep into history. For example, there are a number of famous ancient Chinese documents on the art of war. And uh, one of them is called the uh, 36 Stratagems of War, a collection of short proverbs about how to defeat your enemy. And number 18 goes like this. Defeat the enemy by capturing, uh, perhaps even killing, their chief. So it's common sense, really, isn't it? And it's a principle of warfare that has endured from that time right to the present day. Just on Friday, you'll have seen in the news that the leader of the Pakistani Taliban was killed in a US drone strike, and that's exactly the same principle being applied. Uh, we can defeat the Taliban, presumably the US are thinking, by killing their chief. But I want to take you this morning back to a moment in history where this principle was applied with a vengeance and with very significant effects. I want to take you back 2,000 years to Jerusalem, uh, where the nation of Israel has been knocked about by a number of uh, political and religious uh, movements, some of them quite revolutionary. But the one that the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law in Jerusalem seem to have found especially annoying was the movement led by one Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He was exciting a great deal, uh, creating a great deal of excitement among the people, Uh, but he had directly challenged their authority and made them look both weak and shabby. So they had him killed. And perhaps they then hoped that the movement he had led was now dead and buried with him, And with it, the challenge to their authority. And you can see the thinking again. Defeat the movement, defeat this movement by killing their leader, killing their chief. And this is relevant for us as Christians this morning because, uh, of course, we're a tiny part of that movement they were trying to suppress and squash. And uh, many of them, many like them, have tried to squash it since then and many would love to do so today. But last week we saw that not too long after the execution of Jesus of Nazareth, something momentous happened. Something momentous happened right at the heart of a national religious institution, the temple itself, no less. On the way to the temple, Peter has responded, the Apostle Peter has responded to a man crippled from birth and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man jumped up and began to walk. That miracle was evidence that the risen Jesus was, was and is still powerfully at work. I was saying last week that just like the miracles Jesus did in the flesh, it also gave us a picture of the salvation he is continuing to bring about. It shows that whole movement from struggling around on, under the shadow of death to jumping around full of life. It also gave God's own authentication for what Peter then went on to explain to the people who gathered in amazement when they saw this. All this had happened because of Jesus. Jesus, whom you killed. Jesus, who God raised and we have seen and who is now through this healing giving you a glimpse of the future of refreshment where all things are restored under God's blessing. Jesus, who now calls you to turn back to God and take hold of the blessing you were promised long ago. 
Now, all this has, of course, been profoundly inflammatory. It's like, I suppose, throwing a uh, political or religious dynamite into the straw house of the temple establishment. We've got Bonfire Night coming along this week. Well, this moment in Acts is very much a like the blue touch paper and retreat to the safe place kind of moment. Except, as we'll see, there is no retreat here. And uh, imagine you were John in that situation. Imagine you're John standing there listening and uh, watching, listening to what Peter's saying, saying perhaps, here we go, here we go, counting down on your fingers how long it's going to take for the authorities to respond. And uh, you can see from our passage this morning, it didn't take at all long. Peter hadn't even finished speaking. Chapter 4 Verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. So they shut Peter and John up but not until after their message had been spoken to the people. And uh, just to stir things up still further, verse 4, many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Peter and John, we can uh, safely assume at this point, are in deep trouble. Nonetheless, I do hope that we're going to find this account of what happened to them next deeply encouraging this morning. Basically, Luke, who wrote this account, wants us to have their confidence, the same confidence that Peter and John show us in this chapter. This is what I put on your handout. His purpose in writing this is to give us their confidence as we too are confronted by the enemies of Jesus who want to squash what he is doing. And we're going to look at that in two parts this morning. And that'll help to explain what kind of confidence we're talking about here. What kind of confidence are we talking about? Well, first, confidence in the salvation that comes uniquely through Jesus. And then second, confidence to obey God, not men, as we speak of Jesus publicly. So in verses 1 through to 12, confidence in the salvation that comes uniquely through Jesus. And the punchline is verse 12. It's over the page. Just look at it for a moment. This is the punchline of what we're going to see in this section. This confidence is driven by the knowledge that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So that's the punchline. But how do we get there? Well, if you turn back uh, a page, uh, just look first with me at whom Peter and John have just provoked and disturbed Through that healing in chapter 3 and what Peter said afterwards, they've lit a Jesus-fueled fire in the temple. And this, if you like, is who comes out of the woodwork. Verse 5, the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. I wonder if you recognise anyone here. Uh, These are basically the same people before whom Jesus was taken after his arrest, as Luke has told us in his gospel account. 
These are the people who handed Jesus over to Pilate and vehemently campaigned for his execution, stirring up the crowd to cry out, crucify, crucify. These are verifiable historical people. And Anna seems to have been some kind of high priest emeritus. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he was deposed by a previous Roman governor and Caiaphas appointed in his place, but he's still influential, as you can see. He's still effectively high priest. So there's Annas and there's Caiaphas, who, if you like, is the official high priest, according to the Romans. And John, in his gospel, tells us that it was Caiaphas who especially thought it was important for Jesus to be killed so that Jewish-Roman relations wouldn't be upset. And it's these people, these same people, who have, verse 7, Peter and John brought before them, or more literally, stand in their midst. In other words, they're surrounding them at this point. It must have been quite an intimidating moment. And they began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? I wonder if that question sounds quite familiar to you too. So in his gospel, Luke tells us, as do Matthew and Mark, that when Jesus drove out the sellers from the temple and denounced it as a den of robbers, uh, the same group of leaders, the same people, asked Jesus, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. That challenge to their authority back then set off that chain of events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Well, you can see here, this is basically the same question uh, now set before Peter and John. It leads to quite a similar answer. Let me read you Peter's defense, his answer to their question from verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and are asked how he was healed or that's literally saved from his death-like existence. Then know this, says Peter, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed, whole and healthy, a picture of the blessing to come. You try to crush the authority of Jesus to protect your own. Peter reminds them. But God vindicated his authority by raising him from the dead and you can see that authority and power to give life displayed now in this man now standing right before you as evidence of it. In other words, says Peter, to use the words of David from Psalm 118, which stand as testimony against you, he is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone, that is the cornerstone from which the whole building, the whole body of the people of God is built. And so then comes the devastating conclusion. It's one of the most explosive and countercultural verses in the whole Bible. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's think about this then and uh, how it connects to our situation here in Fullwood uh, in the UK, 2013. Peter's surrounded by uh, people who are deeply challenged and offended by his claim that salvation 
can only be found in Jesus. This is the man, remember, that they have rejected as now become the only hope for the salvation of humanity. Or likewise, we are surrounded by people and indeed a whole culture that is deeply challenged and offended by this claim that salvation can only be found in Jesus. Although perhaps uh, for different reasons. Uh, We know as we go out into the world that the modern consensus in in our culture is that there are many routes to salvation or religious enlightenment, not just one. It unsettles things to claim that there's just one. That's what our culture thinks. And just to complicate things still further, that thinking is becoming increasingly dominant in the Church of England too. There are many ways to God, people like to say. And it's rather like alternate paths up a mountain. You know, we, we start in different places. We go on different journeys. But if we're all heading for the top, we all end up in the same place. And it's interesting, isn't it? When you hear it put like that, it sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? If life or salvation was like climbing a mountain, it might indeed be ridiculous and offensive to do what Peter's doing here and to claim there's only one way up. Uh, But I hope you can see from the book of Acts, Peter's saying, it's just not like that. That's not the right image. We're not standing at the foot of a mountain looking up. That's not the right way of thinking about it at all. No, the right way is this. Where we're standing is is this. We're standing on the edge of a chasm. And we're looking into the abyss. On one side of that chasm is humanity, struggling under the shadow of death. And on our own, we're just simply unable to reach over that chasm to where life and blessing can be found. But praise God, there is a way across, but there's only one way across, and his name is Jesus. Now, of course, that was acutely offensive to the religious establishment at the time. You see, they think they're already on the other side of that chasm. They're already under the blessing of God. They don't want to be lumped with the rest of humanity who are not. So they would have really hated this suggestion or implication from Peter. And of course, this is still offensive today because it does directly imply that other religions, or no religion at all for that matter, are simply not up to the job of finding life and blessing. Some of us may remember hearing about Philip Jensen, who he was preaching as he was installed as dean of the cathedral in Sydney. And he preached this very theme. Salvation is found on no one else but Jesus. And that sermon, because it was so widely publicised, generated nothing less than a firestorm of protest from other religious leaders, from the media, and from politicians. But it's not just a religious It's not just uh, Christian leaders who have to face that kind of protest. I can well imagine people from this church family tomorrow morning. You're standing at the water cooler or the coffee machine and you're being quizzed about your Christian beliefs. And somebody asks you, "So, so can anyone who doesn't trust in the name of Jesus be saved? Someone asks and your heart sinks as they ask it because you have to say no. You have to say 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And of course, a howl of protest goes up then. You just can't say that. That's not acceptable. That's out of bounds in our culture. Uh, Nevertheless, what Peter says does make sense. I hope you can see that over these weeks of looking at the book of Acts. It does stand to reason. He reminded us last week, this is chapter 3, verse 15, that Jesus is the author of life. See, we mustn't deceive ourselves, must we? Uh, Life is not something that we can invent or, or conjure up out of thin air. We are merely creatures in the creation. Life has to come from the outside, from the life giver, from the author of life. Salvation, which is all about life being restored, comes from that same life giver. And the name Jesus tells us where we can find that salvation. And Peter's right, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So we have a choice. What do we really care about? Do we want the easy life to keep things calm, uh, not to ruffle any feathers? Or do we care about people? I mean, really care about people, care about them sufficiently to want them to find the hope of life and blessing and salvation, which they can only find in Jesus. And otherwise, a genuine compassion for people should lead us on occasion to doing things we're not entirely comfortable about, like breaking the rules, for example. And that takes us to our final point. Verses 13 through to 22. Confidence to obey God and not men in speaking of Jesus. And this time the punchline comes in verses 19 and 20. Peter and John's confidence is driven by this conviction. Judge for yourselves, they say, whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. <coughs> but again, let me, take you, let, us, let, us, let me take you quickly through how we get to that punchline. Uh, the events that follow Peter's little speech in verses 8 to 12. Well, first, this is verses 13 to 15, the establishment is in something of a retreat from what Peter's just said. They're on the back foot. They're confused, I think. Uh, Remember, these are the social and intellectual elite, uh, but they have been wrong-footed by the confident speech of unschooled and ordinary men. That must have hurt for people like that. That must have hurt. They're probably also deeply disturbed that the name of Jesus has resurfaced again despite all their best efforts to squash it. But the healed man is standing there as incontrovertible evidence of the salvation of God that has come in the name of Jesus. So for the moment, they can say nothing. So verses 16 and 17, they take some time out. It's very striking. You can see that they know that an outstanding miracle has been done. But interestingly, they don't spare a moment to think about its significance. All they're bothered about is that the name of Jesus, whom they killed, doesn't spread. 
<coughs> Just think about that for a moment. The, uh, the name of Jesus we've been, we've, we can see, and we can see in the healed man, is able to bring life and salvation. But because that same name of Jesus threatens their authority, they act to suppress it. Verse 18, they counterattack. They call Peter and John in again and command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And this is where Peter and John take their stand. Judge for yourselves, they reply, whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It must have felt at the time a pretty bold affront to the authority of the rulers and the elders. Uh, But just as they did with Jesus when he confronted their authority, for the moment they do nothing. They will act later, we'll see that in Acts, but for the moment they do nothing. For the moment they're held at bay, like before. They're afraid of the people, they're afraid of the crowd, who at this time are praising God for the spectacular miracle they've just seen. Now what we're seeing here is the, what you might call the right kind of Christian civil disobedience. Uh, but it's a, a careful disobedience. It's considered, it's never arbitrary. You may well know that the bulk of the teaching in the New Testament on how to relate to the civil authorities or indeed any other authority is about complying with them in a godly way. Civil order is a good thing. Christians need to be on the front line of defending it at all times. The last thing we should be seen as is a threat to the civil order, for that would indeed both distort our message, which is about order in the end, and bring that message into disrepute. But there are limits. Uh, We happily keep the speed limit, I hope, happily, yes. But some things, some things are non-negotiable. And here we're seeing exactly what they are. You might remember from a few weeks ago, we were learning from Acts chapter one, and in the end, the only reason why we're here, the only reason why this period of history that we're in exists is so that the apostles' testimony that Jesus was raised and is now Christ and Lord can get out into the world. Take away that, take away the, the, the proclamation of that testimony, And you take away everything. You take away the whole point of being here. So we can really understand Peter and John here. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I knew someone when we lived in London who worked in an investment bank. And he wrote a little tract to give out to the entire office staff. It was a very clever and nicely written little booklet. It was basically saying that investing in Jesus would be the soundest investment you could ever make. Uh, so he handed it out and uh, was very soon formally disciplined by that firm for doing so. Uh, so interestingly, what he then did was to offer to go round to every person in the department to take the track back and personally apologise for what he had done. That then gave him another opportunity to speak about Jesus to every one of them again, individually. Now that was a a costly thing for him to do. It was costly in terms of the security of his career. It was costly in terms of time. But how could he not? 
This is what he would say. How could I not speak about what I've seen and heard in the Lord Jesus? That was someone understanding the power of the name of Jesus. What we're seeing here is that right from the very beginning, the establishment and cultural forces want to suppress that power. It threatens them. It threatens their authority. Today, it threatens the the kind of artificial peace that exists between religions and non-religions in our culture. But if we know the power of Jesus' name, how can we help but speak about it? Now, all of us in this building will meet people this week who haven't heard of the salvation that comes uniquely through Jesus. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel uh, quite tense. Uh, But the question is, what is going to bring us, when we do meet them, to speak to them about Jesus? That's That's the kind of question that the book of Acts is trying to address Well, if we've seen that several things will help, knowing that they can only find salvation in Jesus is going to help. Compassion for them is going to help. Knowing that what we're here to do in God's world is this very thing, knowing that is going to help. But also, what's going to help is this, knowing that those who would have us not speak about Jesus cannot win in the end. It is, in the end, profoundly foolish to plot or strategize against God by trying to silence or suppress his people. Number 18 of the 36 stratagems of war says, defeat the enemy by killing their leader. And no doubt that strategy has worked well in many theaters of war. But the mistake made by the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law in Jerusalem was to apply that strategy to Jesus. They applied it to a leader who was ultimately unkillable, who could not be held back by death. They applied it to a leader who was and is undefeatable, a leader who returned from death more powerful than before. And far from scattering his followers, they have only succeeded in strengthening and multiplying them as those followers find a secure hope in their resurrected and victorious Lord and spread the name of Jesus nonetheless. So it may not feel like it very often. It may not feel like it. It probably won't feel like it this coming week, but all the weight of God's own victory is behind us. And most especially behind us as we speak of Jesus. Well, let's pray. And uh, Paul Williams is going to lead us in our prayers.